a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program for people who are looking for something more than just a reason to be angry or a reason to fear. This is a show for people who want to see the world around them as it is and understand that they have a role to play in shaping it into what it could become. To that end, I am very happy to welcome my friend Keith Kelsch back to the program. Keith, we had you on a couple of weeks ago, and I know you were pulling people together for a local Commonwealth meeting. Uh, First of all, how did that go? Did you did you have some good turnout? Yeah, it was fun. We uh, had a, a summit. It was called the Voice of Vote and Value Summit at the Electric Theater in downtown St. George about uh, two weeks ago. Okay. And for the, the purpose of that meeting was to, to first of all, bring people together who, who understand. I think most people would agree there, there's a sense that uh, things can't continue on the way they are. If something has got to change, the, the truckers' protest going on in Canada is probably good evidence that this is being felt in many places. For those who didn't hear our first conversation or weren't able to attend the meeting, what is it about the local Commonwealth that uh, deserves their attention or, or should, should merit a closer look? Uh, Local Commonwealth is a business and community networking organization, and uh, we have a chapter that we're organizing. It's here in southern Utah, and it is called the Dixie Business Network, a local commonwealth. Uh, Now, a local commonwealth is basically an idea crafted from a lot of different ideas. Sometimes we're part of all that we meet. And we put this together, which is a networking organization based upon the Junta group that Benjamin Franklin created, based upon the Iroquois Five Nation Confederacy, based upon the idea of a micro-republic, based upon the need in our society for a more decentralized way to come together. Okay. That's kind of helpful, but we're, we're basically a business and community networking organization. We want to build wealth in your business and wealth in the organization. And I need people to understand, you're not talking about this strictly from uh, a political party point of view. This is not just a matter of rah, rah, you know, come and join our party. Um, you're talking about something that, that goes beyond party, which, again, I think that might be one of the more timely things because partisan politics seems to be a source of a lot of our frustrations these days, does it not? Yeah, the, it's it's a lot of the problem we're facing today is is the source of several belief systems, and you can believe that we're born selfish, you can believe that we're born sinners, or you can believe that we're born with rights, or you can believe that we're born unequal. But there's two beliefs that just get pushed to the side and they never organize, and those two beliefs are that we're born free and we're born good. Okay, and, and those two beliefs don't organize. Because they don't have, they don't trust vertically integrated structures of control, and so they don't organize. Well, they haven't. We haven't looked into history to see how they have organized in the past, and it's quite remarkable. And that's what local commonwealth is: it's a way to organize those beliefs that we're, we're born good, we're born free, and it also can incorporate the beliefs that we're born with rights and that we're born not equal. That's so- the high road. <laughs> so with with this initial meeting, it sounds like your turnout was good. You've you've got a good core of people. Where does it go from here? Because obviously, it wasn't just uh, hey, here's here's a need. 
Now everybody go home and we go back to doing whatever we were doing before. What's the next step in the process? The next step is come to our first networking meeting, which is this Thursday at 9.15 in the morning. Uh, Our first networking meeting will be at the Innovation Plaza at Dixie State College, which is just west of the new stadium that's going up, the old elementary school. That's the Innovation, Atwood Innovation Plaza, 9.15 Thursday this week. And come and hear more. Uh, It's our first inaugural meeting. And all are welcome. If you're a business owner, we'd love to have you. If you're just a community person that wants to be more engaged in a really unique way to get engaged, come. We'd love to have you come. What can a person, well, what, well first of all, what do they need to bring? I mean, is, is this, uh, is, what, what's, what are you asking of them other than, than the time to, to get involved? Uh, it's a weekly meeting, and it will last about an hour, hour and 20 minutes, based upon the numbers of each uh, of, of the networking group that comes and uh, bring an open mind and an open heart because nothing's going to get wasted. We don't waste your time. Uh, We're going to really have some fun with the right way to network. And one of the ways we do that is we don't allow you to pitch your own stuff or to pitch your own business or pitch your own ideas. That's not allowed. We do that for you. Interesting. You actually meet with a person there and that person meets with you, and we get to know each other in a more unique way. And then we go around the room, uh, we pitch each other's businesses. That's one of the key components of, of local Commonwealth is we promote, we pitch, we market each other. We don't market ourselves. Keith, you and I have known each other for a long time. I mean, we were neighbors for, for years. Um, one thing that I know has been a very consistent focus of yours is the importance of community. And, and not so much in the sense of, you know, all must bow to the collective, but rather it's in our interest to learn how to work together as opposed to um, basically every man for himself. You know, sorry, you know, you're on your own. Talk to me about uh, about where that uh, that viewpoint comes from and, and, and why this has been such a motivation for you for so long. Um, you've read the book uh, Creature from Jekyll Island. A lot of people have. And there's an there's a kind of an antagonistic view towards what's called collectivism. Mm-hmm. I'm not a collectivist in the, in the sense of the large multi-conglomerates collectivism that's top down. I'm in favor of community. I mean, that's really what a republic or a democratic republic is all about. It increases voice, it increases participation, increases your value, it protects your value, it protects your vote, it brings your vote connected to your voice. Uh, and that's a lot of stuff I've written on over the years is connecting those two together. When you have your voice, which is your intellect, your experience, your w- wisdom, the visions you have, and then you have a vote, which is nothing more than your John Hancock. That's all the vote is, is your consent for yes or no. Mm-hmm. But when you bring those two together, you have what's called the vibrant culture. Now, when you incorporate value, which here's your time, your talent, and you incorporate that, it, it's automatically incorporated when you bring your voice and your vote back together again. That's the only way we can organize as a people. And that's not a collective. That's a consensual culture. And, and consent that, is that key word. I know you've, you and I have talked about this before. Um, and that's, I agree with G. Ed Griffin, you know, as, as far as uh, the, one of my biggest uh, objections to collectivism, as we see it, is is so often it's just, it's coercive. Well, the majority of us said you have to do this, so Keith, you have to do this. It's much more powerful when people freely consent to be a part of something as opposed to have to be, you know, shoehorned into it. 
Right, right. And I think that the people that are what you would call independents, libertarians, conservatives, or what have you, they tend to fall into a belief that we're born with rights. Okay. And we, we see that. There's another spectrum that's to the far left, and they believe that we're born not equal. Those two are never going to get along. Ever. It's not going to happen. And so we that's why local commonwealth was created, because it really takes two other beliefs that brings them together, that we're born free and we're born good. In fact, that's our motto on our website, born free and good. We choose a rising hope that lifts all hearts. That's basically our motto. And it's because we believe that, that we can do great things. What we do together is far more powerful than what we can do alone. And you can see what happens when we... Um, kind of live alone, eventually the tyranny gets so bad that we eventually have to rise up as, as the truckers have in, in Canada and what's happening in Australia. There's a big, huge movement happening there when the oppression gets so bad that, that we eventually have to rise up. And it's we start to reimagine what it means to have voice. We start to reimagine what it means to have all of our efforts not wasted. Okay, We're Let's- not really... We're not really a political organization, but we see the need for people to love one another. We see the need for that love to be scaled and to be precious and be, to be protected and conserved and, and not wasted. That's really what local commonwealth is. So let's let's hit once again the, the time and place where, where this meeting will be taking place. Uh, it'll be 9.15 at the Atwood Innovation Plaza this Thursday. Uh, we are actually because of some uh, very high interest, we'll probably be moving to another location, which I can't disclose right now, which is going to have some more space for us. But it will be this first Thursday at 9.15 at the Atwood Innovation Plaza, on just west of the campus of Dixie State in the old elementary school. Okay, and your website again is localcommonwealth.com? Localcommonwealth.com. You can download the 2022 calendar schedule, and you'll see the Dixie Business Network logo on our web webpage. Uh, and just you can download that and we'd love to have you come we got application forms and everything ready to rock and roll to be something powerful if you could go back 100 years ago to the time when all those major networking organizations were created like the lions club and the and uh rotary and whatnot Mm -hmm. they were pretty cool when they first launched i think we've lost steam over time because we've lost what it means to have consent locally Okay, I'm going to have a link in the show notes, which my listeners can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. Again, we've been talking with Keith Kelsch. Keith, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm going to have you back again. You know I will. Yeah, we'll do that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Remember, this is a place where you are welcome, whether you think all the right thinks or you engage in wrong think, which is simply a matter of questioning whatever line is being fed to us by either people in positions of authority or those who are cozying up to them and, you know, trying to get a contact high off of, uh, off of their authority. I don't know. It may sound kind of cynical, but uh, does it seem like there's a lot of lying going on or does it seem like there's a lot of deception? I've I've had frustration with uh, with mainstream media for quite a few years and a lot of it's self-imposed. OK, so. 
please, you know, understand that uh, most of the most of the sorrow that they bring into my life is stuff that I allow to make me feel, you know, mad or or frustrated with them. Actually, the best thing that I've done in recent years is to drastically limit my intake of mainstream media. And I find the frustration level goes way down, as well as the confusion of trying to figure out what exactly is going on in the world. Now, every so often, though, I see headlines or I I come across stories or excerpts and I'm just like, really? You guys really think we're that stupid? You can just gaslight us and tell us, oh, no, 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 we've always been against these mandates. We've always been against masks and whatever. What You know, that's that's one of the things that's happening right now. But I guess the bottom line is if you're trusting the heritage news media to give you the straight scoop on whatever's happening, you're going to be disappointed or disgusted or frustrated. And something that seems very clear is even when the press gets something wrong, they won't admit it. At least not until Nicholas Sandman has them, you know, by their you-know-whats, and and they have to pay millions and millions of dollars for defaming him. CNN, we're looking your direction. Got a great article here from J. Peter Zane with a very eye-opening explanation about why newspapers refuse to correct errors. He says, many iconic U.S. newspapers sport slogans that seek to explain their mission and self-image. You probably heard some of these. All the news that's fit to print. It's been called some of the seven most famous words in American journalism. How about this? Democracy dies in darkness. That was an overtly partisan call to arms. But the most telling section of a newspaper's true values is its corrections page. See, that's where journalism distinguishes itself from just about every other profession, routinely and straightforwardly admitting its mistakes. Who else does that? I mean, he says it's a soul-crushing enterprise. A single misspelled name is all it takes to ruin an otherwise stellar article. Now, Zane says, look, we, uh, we reporters may forget the topic of the piece we wrote last week. While the error five years ago is seared into our memories, but it's also crucial. Reader trust is the lifeblood of journalism. If you can't believe what you read, why bother? But he says we do get things wrong all the time. Despite the self-righteous claims of too many news outlets, journalists don't print the truth. The first draft of history is necessarily messy and incomplete. What journalists have long promised readers is that we will do our best to get the story right initially and then set the record straight when better information emerges. Now, this isn't solely a commitment to high-minded ethics. It's also transactional. Journalists can so readily acknowledge errors because readers honor and reward our honesty. They forgive our trespasses because we acknowledge them. See, now that makes sense. But Zane says, unfortunately, this glorious compact between readers and journalists is evolving in dangerous directions. As news coverage becomes corrupted by the give-no-quarter partisan divide that shapes our politics. Increasingly, readers expect their favorite news sources to advance their favorite narrative. Facts be damned. And many news outlets beset by immense economic challenges seem happy to satisfy them to stay afloat. Now, a notable example is the stubborn unwillingness of major news outlets to to correct clear errors in their coverage of the Trump-Russia investigation. He gives this example. 
He says, on November 24th, my colleague at Real Clear Investigations, Aaron Mate, wrote a detailed article highlighting a series of stories published by the New York Times and the Washington Post that contained false or misleading claims. And the pieces he analyzed were either part of the entry the paper submitted to win a 2018 Pulitzer Prize for their Russiagate coverage or were written by reporters who shared in that honor. Now, significantly, the major errors and misleading assertions identified by Mate were not based on newly discovered information, but on documents and statements long in the public domain. Now, before publication, Mate sent multiple detailed requests for comment to the reporters and newspaper representatives, and all but one of his queries went unanswered. As of February 7th, neither newspaper has appended a single correction or clarification to those articles. And he gives a couple of examples from the Times that reflect the problems that Mate found. So, for example, one, February 4th, 20th, let's try that again, February 14th, 2017. The Times published a bombshell report that seemed to establish a Trump-Russia conspiracy. Quote, phone records and intercepted calls show that members of Donald J. Trump's 2016 presidential campaign and other Trump associates had repeated contacts with senior Russian intelligence officials in the year before the election according to four current and former American officials. Now, four months later, then-FBI Director James Comey undercut that story when he testified to Congress that in the main, his words, the Times report, and again, this is a direct quote from him, was not true. Documents declassified in 2020 show that this view was widely held at the FBI. Peter Strzok, the uh, top FBI counterintelligence agent who opened the Trump-Russia probe, described the article as misleading and inaccurate. Strzok wrote, We are unaware of any Trump advisors engaging in conversations with Russian intelligence officials. Their view was corroborated by special counsel Robert S. Mueller, whose extensive Russiagate report contained no evidence of contacts between Trump associates and Russian intelligence officials, senior or otherwise. Now, perhaps the newspaper sources had information that the men leading the probe were unaware of. Well, at the very least, the Times should address such questions about the accuracy of its reporting. Now, there's another example he gives about um, the Times reporting that the FBI opened its Trump-Russia investigation because of supposed evidence that the Trump campaign knew about an earlier hack of DNC servers. And I'll let you sort that one out for yourself. I don't, I'm going to run out of time on this one. But look, the bottom line is they didn't correct another blatant falsehood here. And he says, because the paper has refused to correct these issues, we don't know why it stands by its reporting on this matter. Perhaps it knows things that we do not. But he says, regardless, it has an obligation to set the record straight. Silence is the enemy of transparency. Zane says the Times isn't operating in a vacuum. One reason it's not owning up to its errors is the people whose goodwill it depends on, its readers and the largest, larger journalistic community, including the board of the Pulitzer Prize, don't seem to care. He says, I think they believe our country is at war with itself and, admit, and that admitting that the most prestigious news outlet on their side or outlets made grave errors in reporting the biggest story of the last five years would actually give succor to the enemy. Perversely, acknowledging these errors would be an act of betrayal to the larger cause embraced by the increasingly radicalized minority of people who buy their product and pay their bills. 
Now, J. Peter Zane says, look, sorry, this, this sorry situation's been a long time coming. At least since the 1980s, conservatives have actively accused mainstream outlets of liberal bias. In a healthy society, the editors would have taken this seriously, using the criticism that seemed valid, not all of it was or is, to improve their coverage. But instead, over time, they've transformed the complaints into a rationale for becoming even more biased. They dismiss it all as right-wing talking points, even apparently factual errors. No wonder Gallup reports America's trust in the media is near an all-time low. I mean, if you can't count on journalists to set the record straight, why bother? That doesn't mean that you and I have to wander around in a permanent state of indecision and just, you know, I can't know anything. It just means if there's something that you really want to understand, you have got to be ready to dig in and do the research yourself and do your own fact-checking. Don't tell me it can't be done. People are doing it all the time. And yes, you can do it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to LifesavingFood.com. If you've been thinking about food storage, if you've been acting on your thoughts about getting food storage set up and squared away, these are some great folks to know. My friend Kendall Whiting is the owner of LifesavingFood.com. He will make it worth your while, not only with the selection of foods available, and we're talking freeze-dried and dehydrated foods. Bottom line, 25-year shelf life. Okay, this is stuff you're going to use at some point. You don't have to save it for the end of the world, assuming that that's, you know, on its way. But it's just a great thing to have for, you know, unexpected blizzards. I know that that may not be applicable where you are in a tropical paradise somewhere. But for unexpected job loss, you know, a, a major illness or other things that disrupt your ability to just trundle on down to the store and get whatever you need. Now, to make it worth your while... He's offering a 20% discount on anything you order, plus free shipping and no sales tax. So, got some nice incentives. Click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. That's lifesavingfood.com. You know, the divide between the ruling class and the rest of us is getting very, very clear. I think probably what we see playing out in Canada right now with the Canadian truck drivers and the way that their government, or at least many within their government, are responding is a good indication of this. And the the ruling class, I don't know. Maybe maybe they're maybe they're right to be frustrated and to think, why why aren't people giving, you know, why aren't they obeying us? Why don't they just do what we tell them to do? And it's because at some level a lot of people are starting to wake up to the notion that, hey, maybe what these guys are doing and these gals are doing, maybe it's really not in our best interest. But at any rate, that divide is getting bigger. So how do we refer to the people who think they know best? Got a great article here from Christopher Chantrell. This was published on AmericanThinker.com. What to call our ruling class. Now, this is not about name calling, okay? So this is not just, hey, what dirty words can we call them to make them feel bad? It's more about how can we accurately refer to to, to the people who think that they have license to run our lives and we need to just shut up and do what we're told. Christopher Chantrill says, one of my readers recently wrote that he objected to my use of the term the educated ruling class. 
This is the objection. He says, every Jill Biden with a Ph.D. in kitty literature considers themselves ruling class, but he says they're decidedly uneducated. Now, Christopher Chantrill says, of course, I use the term while understanding that it's mostly the ruling class's self-image. Your liberal friends believe that their right to rule issues from their education. You doubt it? Well, here's an Atlantic writer, David Graham, who just can't understand politicians like Ron DeSantis that, quote, belie their impressive degrees from Ivy League universities by aligning themselves with the populist conservative movement in some capacity, end quote. Then Vox Day lists to a couple of uh, links to a couple of pieces sneering at our ruling class. First, he looks at the way that prestigious institutions recruit. Quote, elite employers only recruit the most at the most elite colleges, and they want recruits to be attractive, energetic, articulate, socially smooth, and have had elite connections, jobs, and extracurriculars. Extracurriculars? Yeah. But they must not be useful, merely prestigious. Access interest in ideas marks you as a boring tool. And he ends with a quote from Dominic Cummings, the Brit, the Brit that ran the winning Brexit referendum. Politics is full of people who want to prove they're the smartest person in the room. But they almost never realize that the room they're in rarely has any really smart people in it. Ouch. <laughs> That's still pretty good, though. Then Vox Day picks up an actual piece from Dominic Cummings' substack, where Cummings quotes chunks of Tolstoy's War and Peace about courtiers buzzing and humming uselessly around in the court of the Russian Tsar during the Napoleonic invasion of Russia, says Cummings, assuming wrongly that at least those in charge know what they're trying to do is one of the biggest errors made by the media and high status, often highly competent observers. And Chantrill asks, but why? Why should this be so? How about this? There is no politics without an enemy. Therefore, the point of any politics is to rally under a warrior leader and then defeat the enemy. So, needless to say, you need the best warrior possible and the best men to fight and conquer the enemy. But after victories won, you don't need all those exceptional people anymore. You just need people to keep on carrying on. You need You mean people who are attractive, energetic, articulate, uh, socially smooth, the ones who have elite personal connections, jobs, and extracurriculars, that kind of person? Christopher Chantrell says, but suppose all those attractive, energetic people have kind of let things wind down while doing all those extracurriculars. Time for a leader with exceptional skills again. But he says, I don't, don't expect him to be from a ruling class that's full of people who want to prove they're the smartest person in the room when they really aren't that smart, or are merely courtiers buzzing and humming around in deep state Georgetown. Chantrell says, and the new leader won't be reprising the over-under political formula with the left as allies of the majority oppressed peoples against the minority white oppressors. When John Rudis and Reed Teixeira published their emerging Democratic majority in 2002, all the best people knew the future belonged to a majority coalition of the college-educated, minorities, women, and the young. But when President Biden messes up the economy, the Dem college-educated voters reduce to the professional wokists. Dem women reduce to college administrators. Dem minorities reduce to blacks, and the young know they are screwed by the current system. So the Democratic majority reduces to a small minority, the wokesters and the serfs. And a new political formula starts to take shape. The expanding middle. 
Christopher Chantrell says, look, if you folks with the best extracurriculars want to be separate and special, that's okay with us. When you finish your latest extracurricular, we'd like to discuss how all your brilliant political ideas and and programs have made things worse. If you marginalized folks who want to dwell in an ethnic ghetto, as many emerging Americans have done over the decades, we'll be there to welcome you into the great middle when you're ready to join our great American party. The question is still, what do we call our ruling class? To say educated ruling class, as my friend says, doesn't really communicate its cluelessness. And I don't want to use pejoratives so beloved of our liberal friends because I don't consider the ruling class composed of enemies, but only fools and knaves that have never stepped outside the box of their finishing school education. But wait, why not call them the pejorative ruling class? The members use pejoratives like racist, sexist, homophobe five times before breakfast. So the shoe fits. But there's another reason. The Latin verb, pejorer, means to make things worse. <laughs> it fits, okay. So when we talk about the pejorative, the pejorative ruling class, we're talking about a ruling class that makes things worse. That's just our little joke. But don't tell Whoopi Goldberg. Okay, so I enjoy that. I, I really like that commentary. I, I think that's, that's brilliant that... Uh, the, the Latin root for pejorative talks about making things worse. And the people who were the first to call you racist, sexist, homophobe, well, that's, that's pretty much what they're doing. So, rather than just uh, reduce ourselves to, okay, what names are we going to call each other, I want to offer an alternative. And, and uh, it's okay if you turn your nose up at this, if you say, eh, that, that, that just sounds, you know, not for me. Too hoity, too toity. Too much artsy, not enough fartsy. Okay, I I get it. I get it. But the best investment you can make in terms of your own understanding of the world is to immerse yourself in a classical liberal arts education. You don't have to be in a classroom to have this. You don't have to stop what you're doing and go to St. John's and Santa Fe and, you know, (laughs) attend this classical liberal arts school. I mean, if you can do it, great. I'm sure it'd be worth your time. But I'm talking about a time-tested method through which generations of not just Americans, but generations of people all over the world, and particularly throughout Western civilization, have become educated in the sense that they have learned how to train their brains to think, to ask the right questions, to measure, to weigh, to contrast ideas in search of workable solutions. Study classics. Read books that are over your head. Read old books. And yes, I'm talking about the old stuff, the great books of Western civilization. Better still, if in in the course of your reading, you can actually team up with a few people who likewise are reading and and perhaps, uh, you know, have some kind of colloquium or discussion with them about what you're reading. Learn from their insights. Let them learn from your insights. Now, I know it sounds like, well, this sounds so quick and easy, and it's... I, I wish it were, but it's it's not. It's like exercise. It's it, it can be tedious. It can be painful. You know, when your lungs are burning after a nice long run, you know, that's not the time where you're thinking, man, this is so great. But consistent effort will yield results. Your ability to understand, your ability to organize your thoughts, your ability to think more clearly will increase. And as that increases... So will your influence 
on the people and the world around you. I've seen it work in my own life. I promise it will work in yours as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to uh, mention the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. This should be of particular interest to anybody listening to me within the state of Utah. If you are someone who is uh, looking for a mortgage, maybe you want to refinance your existing mortgage, maybe you're looking for, a, you know, an FHA loan or you're looking for, you know, a, a reverse mortgage, whatever it be, traditional mortgage, mortgage, uh, whatever, VA loans, you know, th- the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has decades of experience and the stability and the clout to help you get your home loan without delay. Why is that so important? Well, it's a very competitive real estate market, and that means you just don't have time to dawdle about, you know, waiting to, to see if your financing is going to come through. you got to know what you have. you got you pretty much got to have, you know, that financing in hand when you make that offer. Contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Either stop by and see them at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Call 435-703-4522. I also have a link in my show notes, which will take you right to Heather's email. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, how worried the political class is becoming with this little thing called free speech. In fact, uh, I've, I've got a DHS, that's Department of Homeland Security bulletin, that was just released. That is, it's the, the Department of Homeland Security has issued a National Terrorism Advisory System bulletin. So the NTAS bulletin. Would you care to guess what the elevated threat is these days? <laughs> Pull up a chair, grab your blood pressure medication, because uh, this this one is is simply unbelievable. I'm reading from the bulletin today. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro N. Mayorkas issued a national terrorism advisory bulletin regarding the continued heightened threat environment across the United States. This is the fifth. NTAS bulletin issued by the Department of Homeland Security since January 2021. And it replaces the current bulletin that was set to expire actually yesterday. DHS remains committed to proactively sharing timely information and intelligence about the evolving threat environment with the American public. That's Secretary Alejandro and Mayorkas. We also remain committed to working with our partners across every level of government and in the private sector to prevent all forms of terrorism and targeted violence and to support law enforcement efforts to keep our communities safe. This NTAS bulletin outlines the key factors that have increased the volatility, unpredictability and complexity of the current threat environment and highlights resources for individuals and communities to stay safe. What do you suppose it could be? Uh, is it is it Russian hackers? Is it is it Islamic sleeper cells? Is it is it right wing extremists, insurrectionists that are getting ready to take over the whole country? No, something much scarier. The United. This is from the bulletin. Quote: The United States remains in a heightened threat environment fueled by several factors, including 
an online environment filled with false or misleading narratives and conspiracy theories and other forms of mis, dis, and mal information. They just shorten it to MDM. Introduced and or amplified by foreign and domestic threat actors. Oh, I see. These threat actors, says the bulletin, seek to exacerbate societal friction to sow discord and undermine public trust in government institutions to encourage unrest, which could potentially inspire acts of violence. Mass casualty attacks and other acts of targeted violence conducted by lone offenders and small groups acting in furtherance of ideological beliefs and or personal grievances pose an ongoing threat to the nation. Now, while the conditions underlying the heightened threat landscape have not significantly changed over the last year, the convergence of the following factors has increased the volatility, unpredictability, and complexity of the threat environment. Number one, the proliferation of false or misleading narratives, which sow discord or undermine public trust in U.S. government institutions. Number two, continued calls for violence directed at U.S. critical infrastructure, soft targets and mass gatherings, faith-based institutions such as churches, synagogues, and mosques, institutions of higher education, racial and religious minorities, government facilities and personnel, including law enforcement and the military, the media, and perceived ideological opponents. And number three, calls by foreign terrorist organizations for attacks on the United States based on recent events. Now, this may sound like, wow, did, did you hear all the danger and the, the scary stuff that's going on out there? People are going to come after us and we're all going to die. This is ramping up the war on free speech. I mean, come on. The White House itself has been pressuring Spotify. You got to do something about this Joe Rogan character. We've had Congress calling in, you know, the, the big tech people. Zuckerberg and others. Why aren't you doing more to control misinformation and disinformation? And I I really love this part here about uh, narratives, misleading or false narratives, which sow discord or undermine public trust in U.S. government institutions. Now, bear with me on this for just a second, but what if U.S. government institutions are absolutely doing things that undermine the public's trust in the first place. You know, trying to screw people out of their jobs unless they get a mandated vaccine or something like that. Oh, I'm sure I know. It's not really them. That's the businesses. Those are the companies that chose to do that. Yes, at the behest of those U.S. government institutions. Look, I'm not saying you got to be that angry guy in the trailer park who's always ranting about, you know, the government's doing this and the government's doing that. But if you can't see how the people in power, not just at the federal level, but right on down to your local municipal level, are working in concert to consolidate control over you and your life, not for your interests, not for your safety, not for your protection or enjoyment, but to advance their own interest and their own consolidation of power and control. My friend, you're not paying attention. And now we've got this this bulletin out here equating free speech with terrorism. I mean, at what point do they just pull the, the mask off and say, you know, hey, we've got to shut down the Internet or we've got to take over the Internet you know, as is done in truly totalitarian 
regimes. I mean, just since January of 2021, the Department of Homeland Security has established a new domestic terrorism branch aimed at anybody who questions the official line of what things are supposed to be. They've launched the Center for Prevention Programs and Partnerships to provide communities with resources and tools to prevent individuals from radicalizing to violence. Okay, I'm going to give you my interpretation of what radicalizing to violence is. When people say, not just no, but hell no, I am not going to go along with that. Oh, that's a radical thing. Why, you're probably, you're probably going to be violent. Well, gee, I don't know. Are you planning on bringing violence to me because I won't go along with something that you are trying to impose on me against my will? I mean, we're not talking about people who are committing crimes and, you know, fugitives from justice. Somebody showed up to take your family members to a quarantine camp or something like that. What would your reaction be? Would you just, well, okay, I guess we got to do it. You know, if government says it, it's right. Hardly. My point is, though, if there's any violence coming to the situation, it's going to come from government. It's going to come from the escalation on the part of people enforcing political policies. And they list through all these other things, you know, domestic homes, uh, homeland security grants uh, to to spend $77 million on preventing, preparing for, protecting against, and responding to related threats nationwide. Again, this is not to protect you. This is to protect their power. $180 million in funding to support target hardening and other physical security enhancements yet to keep to keep the people at bay. Increased efforts to identify and evaluate MDM, again, that's misleading uh, or, or misinformation, disinformation, or misleading information, including false or misleading narratives and conspiracy theories spread on social media and other private platforms that endorse violence and enhanced cooperation or collaboration with public and private sector partners including U.S. critical infrastructure owners and operators, to better protect our cyber and physical infrastructure and increase the nation's cybersecurity. This is, this is a turning point. In fact, uh, Jeffrey Tucker says, you know, you, ought to, you should probably bookmark this particular bulletin. This is, this is probably akin to the Enabling Act of 1933 that brought a certain little chancellor into power as the Fuhrer of what would become the Third Reich. The idea that we've got to control this information and nobody can question, even peacefully, you can't question these things. Come on, we've seen the pressure and clamp down start. It's going to get tougher. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I know that there are people out there who have honest hearts, humble spirits, and are looking for a solid take on the world that isn't trying to spin them one way or another, but gives them the opportunity to assess the facts and make up their own minds. And I'm guessing that you are one of those individuals. 
So I encourage you to come and revel in Wrong Think with me as well as your fellow wrong thinkers here on this program. Our show is brought to you by great sponsors each and every day, including HSLAmmo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center.com, MonticelloCollege.org, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com. So in, in the second hour of the show, or in the other hour, I talk about uh, how there, there's now a DHS, or Department of Homeland Security, bulletin that is elevating misinformation to a terrorist threat. I mean, it's look, after January 6th, it was very clear that the people who were, were taking over in power, that would be the, the Democrats at this point, were looking for every possible way to weaponize all of government from the federal level on down, against anyone who might challenge them. Now, we're talking nonviolently, of course, but um, it, domestic extremism has become kind of the, the buzzword of, you know, this is what we have to protect against. And essentially, they're talking about um, we have to turn the government's focus and its guns at about half the country who does not agree with the direction that uh, the current you know ruling class or the current ruling party is trying to take us. That seems very dangerous to them. And it's, it's, it's a little bit scary. This misinformation thing. Oh, what a broad term. Well, that's misinformation. And yet, what if, let's, let's just take COVID misinformation, right? Isn't this, behind, isn't this what, what started the whole purge and the, the um, attacks against Joe Rogan? Well, you know, he had people on his uh, podcast, and that's, that's why, you know. Yeah, he brought down the COVID narrative. And I, I'm not going to shy away from this. Joe Rogan has, you know, he can claim bragging rights. Two interviews that he did with Dr. Peter McCullough and another with Dr. Robert Malone were enough to put serious cracks in the COVID narrative. But my point is, hey, if if it cracked that easily, if it's something that, if it's something that the truth, you know, truth in quotation marks, if the truth is not on its side, then that's a narrative that deserves to crumble. But, the, you know, Rogan has a big target on his back. Well, it's not just that. He's racist. Ah, because, you know, the COVID narrative, and never mind that, he's racist. You know, we got to change the subject. Move the goalposts quickly before people start to notice. Well, if there was a serious effort to go after the top purveyors of COVID misinformation, Steve Kirsch has put together a list of misinformation spreaders who've actually done measurable harm, people who should be investigated immediately. And you're likely to recognize a lot of these names. Now, he's referencing, of course, the Department of Homeland Security uh, getting tough on COVID misinformation spreaders. In other words, people who spread information that, quote, undermines public trust in government institutions. And since DHS has finite resources to pursue all these perpetrators as a public service, he says, I've created what I believe are a list of some of the country's top misinformation spreaders. Steve Kirsch says, I sincerely hope the Department of Homeland Security will focus their efforts on these individuals since they have made statements and or taken actions or refused to take action that result in the undermining of public trust in U.S. government institutions. Now, he says it's extremely easy to tell who is telling the truth here. It's the people who are not afraid of debate. The one thing everyone on our list has in common is that they will never agree to debate anyone with opposing views. These people need to be stopped now. And he says, I'm afraid that DHS is finally taking the, I'm grateful rather, that DHS is finally taking this as, this seriously as innocent lives are being lost. 
Now, from here, he he goes through the the Department of Homeland Security memo that I talked about in the other hour of the show. But he points out one particular section. Key factors contributing to the current heightened threat environment include the proliferation of false or misleading narratives which sow discord or undermine public trust in U.S. government institutions. For example, there is widespread proliferation of false or misleading narratives regarding unsubstantiated widespread election fraud and COVID-19. Grievances associated with these themes inspired violent extremist attacks during 2021. Huh, he says, I couldn't come up with any violent extremist attacks during 2021 that were inspired by this alleged COVID-19 misinformation. Can you? So to make their job easier to pursue these spreaders of COVID-19 misinformation... Steve Kirsch has compiled a list of the disinformation dozen. These are the top spreaders of COVID disinformation that are literally killing people through spreading misinformation about COVID. He says, I believe that all these people are involved in the proliferation of false or misleading narratives which sow discord or undermine public trust in U.S. government institutions and have collectively led to the tragic death of over over one million people. And he says all of these people should be detained for questioning. I've also provided a handy list of questions that none of them will be able to answer with satisfactory answers. Now, he says, no, this list is subjective. Different people will have different lists, but most people will agree on the top five. First person on the list, President Joe Biden. Told the public vaccines were safe and effective, even though the data said the opposite. Wore ineffective face masks in order to mislead the public into thinking masks could protect them refused to meet with any qualified scientist or doctor with opposing viewpoints before and after mandating the vaccines, deliberately refuses to meet with scientists with opposing viewpoints and so continues to spread misinformation today. He tried to scare the unvaccinated by claiming the unvaccinated would experience a winter of severe illness and death, continues to erode public trust in the office of the president with approval ratings that are at all-time lows. Okay, he's got a point. Number two on the list, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky told people the vaccines are safe and effective and that masks work, rather, withheld information about early treatment protocols. Number three, NIAID Director Anthony Fauci funded the virus, covered it up, knowingly spread misinformation about the source of the virus, lied about it all in Congress when questioned by Senator Rand Paul and told Cliff Lane not to approve any early treatments in the guidelines. Number four, U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy told people the vaccines are safe and effective and that masks work and said nothing about effective early treatment protocols. Compounded the error by labeling labeling people trying to spread life-saving information as disinformation spreaders. Number five, Bill Gates funded the misinformation campaigns, the fact checkers, including GAVI. Number six, FDA Commissioner Janet Woodcock said she would investigate the Maddie Daguerre case that proved fraud in the Pfizer trial and then did nothing. The FDA also denied the EUA application on fluvoxamine, a drug later proven to reduce mortality by 12 times in a large phase three trial. Number seven, COVID-19 Guidelines Chairman Cliff Lane discredited every single working COVID early treatment, including a fluvoxamine, fluvoxamine, which has a 12-time reduction in fatalities, ignored all COVID-19 early treatments that work. Tom Shimabukuro, 
a CDC vaccine expert, never mentioned the VAERS URF, which underplayed the danger of vaccines by at least 41 times and deliberately misled people about the causality and VAERS by claiming you can't determine causality. Ignored all the safety seals in VAERS on all but a few signals in VAERS on all but a few symptoms. Ignored the death safety signal. Ignored every safety signal in DMAD. See, I don't even know what a lot of these uh, acronyms are for. John Sue, also CDC VAERS expert, says see Tom Shimabukuro above. Number 10, Stephen A. Anderson from the FDA, the top vaccine safety official at the FDA, deliberately ignored all the VAERS and DMED safety signals and ignored all attempts to meet about the safety signals. Number 11, Gavin Newsom, governor of California, mandated vaccination in California even though he was injured by the COVID vaccine, will not vaccinate his own kids. He knows the vaccines are dangerous from firsthand experience and deliberately misleads the people of California by claiming they're safe. And number 12, Dr. Richard Pan, California State Senator, introduced legislation in the California legislature to close the personal exemption loophole for COVID-19 school vaccinations, which will lead to the death of an unknown number of children, all done with no scientific evidence. Now, he goes on from here, but you get the point. These are the spreaders of misinformation. Oh, and the top corporate spreaders of misinformation? You might recognize a few of these. These are the ones who refused to censor doctors and scientists who claimed vaccines are safe and effective and that masks work. And they include names like YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Medium, Nextdoor, Wikipedia, and all the fact-checker organizations. Look, you may still disagree with Steve Kirsch, but this is some pretty good food for thought as to uh, who is really providing the misinformation and disinformation. And I think he's probably a lot more right than wrong on this one. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about uh, gaslighting. Probably the best illustration of what gaslighting is can be found in a joke that my kids shared with me. And it goes something like this. One of my kids asked me, Hey, Dad, have you heard the joke about gaslighting? And my response was, no. To which my child said, yes, you have. I said, no, I, I haven't heard it. What is it? I've already told you. No, you haven't. I, I've not heard the joke. You're crazy. There you go. That's how it works. That's that's what it is to gaslight somebody. And it's all the rage these days among people who were once the staunchest, staunchest supporters of lockdowns and mandates, but now we're trying to claim, hey, we were always against these things. You know, I, I sometimes struggle with my potty mouth because I swear when I'm under stress, and, and I, I, I take great effort to, to rein in that, that foul mouth, but boy, it, you know, when I when I encountered people who were like, well, we've always you know been against this and we've always been on the right side of this. It, it makes me want to yell some really horrible words at them just because of the, the audacity of it. All right. Putting that aside for a moment, let's talk about rewriting of covid history. This is from the Ron Paul Liberty Report. Chris Rossini is the author of this. 
Rossini says it took much too long, but it appears the tide of public opinion has finally turned. The term, trust the science, has suddenly lost its luster, especially when it comes from the mouth of a politician or so-called expert. Now, the meanings of the words science and expert have been blown to pieces, but such is always the case when politicians get involved in things they shouldn't be involved in. They have an uncanny ability of destroying everything they touch. Well, they touched the word science and expert and made them completely unrecognizable. I've heard the phrase, you can't tell what's true anymore, more than enough times over the last several years. We've all had a front row seat in what a so-called post-truth world looks like. And it looks like totalitarian tyranny. Truth and liberty go hand in hand, as do lies and tyranny. Now, miraculously, as public opinion has changed, so has the science. Imagine that. The science now says that masks, lockdowns, and mandates, well, that's actually kind of a bad idea. Oh, you think? If only the science crystal ball had said such things two years ago. Imagine all the pain, suffering, and death that could have been avoided. Now, Chris Rossini says one must also wonder, if public opinion didn't change, would the science have remained unchanged as well? Who knows? But as the tyranny is reluctantly peeled away, the predictable rewriting of history has begun. Think of the Iraq War as an analogy for what you should expect going forward. The mania of lies and smears that led up to that failed war was deafening. Now think about today. How many people actually admit to supporting the Iraq War? Roughly. You can probably count them on one hand. Very, very few people. Only the hardcore warmongers will admit to it. Well, as COVID history is fabricated and branded into digital ink, you can be sure to see the same behavior from the lying class. Denial followed by more denial. I never supported the wearing of masks. I was always against the lockdowns. Vaccine passports, what do you think I am? Some kind of Nazi? So Chris Rossini says, be prepared. Because just as people will not admit that they supported the Iraq war, so will they start changing their tunes about being petty dictators for a solid two years. The blame will also be offloaded onto a fictional collective. Be prepared to see the word we over and over again. We should have known better. We made mistakes. We need to do a better job. The government needs more money. We thought that masks, lockdowns, and vaccines would work. In other words, the culprits are going to try to hide behind the smokescreen called we. But what has just transpired is not the result of some imaginary we. What has been done was done by specific individual people with their own specific goals. Contrary to one of the mantras that, we, that were repeated throughout, we were certainly not in this together, not by a long shot. There were clear beneficiaries and clear victims and a vast majority of people as they start to lick their wounds and try to put together their lives that were needlessly shattered need to keep in mind there are some lessons to be learned. By the way, I think he's right about these two. First, stop believing the professional lying class. They will lie about wars. They will lie about viruses. They'll lie about the economy, about everything. Always assume that people who are trying to force you to do something you don't want to do are lying. You'll rarely be disappointed in your decision. Also, another lesson that we've learned, tyranny does not solve problems. It exacerbates and it multiplies them. Complying with tyranny does not make it go away. Compliance only multiplies the demands and mandates that will be imposed upon you. And finally, liberty is only a belief away. 
Chris Rossini says, during times like these, it's waiting in the wings, waiting to be embraced. It never imposes itself. When liberty is embraced, it changes everything for the better. I mean, look, I'm, I'm detecting, you know, traceable levels of anger in myself as I share this. But is it wrong to be upset, to be lied to? And is, is it wrong to be upset when the people who lied and the people who imposed and, and, and embraced tyrannical actions suddenly want to pretend like, well, you know, we had no way of knowing. It's not like anybody warned us. See, you know, I'm, I'm fighting the urge to, to say a bad word that uh, refers to bovine excrement. There were plenty of people warning you, but you wouldn't listen. Or worse, you were trying to marginalize those people or attack those people and otherwise, you know, undermine them and, and, and put them off in a padded room somewhere. Look, it's not about vengeance here. It's about do the right thing. If you did something wrong, if you, if you embraced something wrong, if you were the part of causing harm, you need to own it. And insofar as you're able to, you need to try to make that right. And this is, this is probably going to land me on some Department of Homeland Security watch list for suggesting this, but making things right means that the people who pushed these policies the hardest, the ones who, who pushed them, crafted them, the ones who enforced them, should all have a day sitting in court answering for what they did. Yes, I'm suggesting they ought to be held criminally liable. That's ideally what should happen. That's if justice were going to be pursued, pursued that's, that's what would need to happen. Now, if that's not possible or if that's just a little too harsh for some people, then at the very least, these people need to be removed from power, peacefully, of course, and never, under any circumstances, trusted with the slightest bit of authority. I'm talking not even as a dog catcher. Because they've shown that a little bit of authority will make them so drunk with power, they'll do whatever they think they can. And, and if they're not willing to own up to their, you know, to their mistakes, they simply can't be trusted. Now, I get it. If that sounds too harsh. But you got to remember, some, some of us were looking at this not through the lens of, well, what's, uh, what benefits my party? What uh, reflects favorably on President Trump? What reflects you know, favorably on the Democrats? We were looking at this through the lens of what is happening here to our individual God-given rights? What is happening to the proper limits on government, which exists for the purpose of securing and guaranteeing those God-given rights? I try hard not to encourage anger, but I tell you, I'm, I'm feeling some anger today as, as I contemplate this. It's not like this is a huge secret and, oh, well, you know, nobody could have known. There were lots and lots of warning voices. But to me, the, the gravest error that was made is that when the government's pandemic response failed miserably... The response of many of its supporters and many people within that system was to just keep on chugging and we're going to try harder and try to shut up these misinformation idiots who are otherwise questioning what we're doing. I've had this conversation with a lot of friends, you know. Have you said, I told you so yet? Because the temptation is getting stronger by the minute. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to invite you uh, to do a couple of things. First of all, subscribe to my show notes, because in those show notes you will find links to the various guests as well as the various articles and commentators that I share on this program. It's free. All it's going to cost you is your email address. I'll drop it in your inbox each morning that I do the show. Also, I want to encourage you to visit the show notes so that you can get better acquainted with my sponsors like Sewing and Quilting Center. Now, Sewing and Quilting Center is located in St. George, Utah. They are a family-owned business. It's been in operation since 1984. In that time, this business has only changed hands three times, but they are remarkable. And if you or someone you love is into sewing or embroidery or long-arm quilting, they have everything you could possibly need. They have the machines. They have the the people who know how to fix and repair those machines. So you can buy with confidence knowing that uh, you can keep that thing operating for years to go. If you need to learn how to use it, they offer classes on how to do so. All the thread, all the fabric, all the supplies, it's all there in one place. Just go to sewingandquiltingcenter.com, sewingandquiltingcenter.com. All right, let's talk about... Let's talk about, uh, first there was a study by John Hop, Johns Hopkins just a couple of weeks ago that came out that said the, the COVID-19 response, the lockdowns, the mandates, the, the masking, all of that kind of stuff was a failure. Now a Harvard medical professor is confirming what a lot of us already knew. And that is that the government's pandemic response failed miserably and ignored the consequences of its policies. John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, says Dr. Stefanos Kallis, a professor of medicine at Harvard University, has joined the chorus of voices who are saying the government's response to the pandemic was a mistake and public health officials should shift to a policy of protecting the vulnerable. Kallis, who uh, I think it's pronounced Kallis, it could be Kales, says, I think what we saw is the danger of turning over public policy and public health recommendations to people who have had their careers exclusively focused on infectious diseases as opposed to public health in general. Now, keep in mind, this doctor serves as the direct, as director at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Callis, who made the argument or the comments rather in an interview on CNBC, said it was a big mistake to ignore economic considerations while responding to the pandemic. Public health is a balance, he said, saying that health officials should allow the young and healthy to move on from this pandemic. How many businesses closed and did not make it through that first six to 12 months? A lot of these restaurants, their business is still way down. Large companies can survive, but a lot of small businesses have gone under. That takes a toll on the health of people who work there or own those businesses. Now, the doctor said he described the public health response as a failure because it failed to take into account all the collateral damage of government restrictions. Callis said the whole idea of we just ignore everything else in the economy and health and well-being and we try to get to zero COVID cases was never a realistic goal. And it has failed miserably. We haven't balanced all these other things. The fentanyl overdoses in the U.S. are at a record high, as well as other opioids. Suicidality in young people. It's a big mistake. 
Now, John Miltimore says many of the points that this good doctor raises are issues that the Foundation for Economic Education has been highlighting for the last 18 months. The lockdowns did tragically correspond with record drug overdoses. Youth suicide and depression did surge during the government's response to the pandemic. A host of other unintended consequences did accompany lockdowns, including an unprecedented and deadly drop in cancer screenings, widespread bankruptcies, social unrest, millions of job losses, and an estimated 150 million people pushed into extreme poverty globally, not to mention the 8 million people here in the U.S. who fell into poverty. Meanwhile, a myriad of studies have shown lockdowns were mostly ineffective at slowing COVID-19 and reducing death. Research recently corroborated by Johns Hopkins University meta-analysis that concluded lockdowns had little to no effect on COVID-19 mortality. When asked about the Johns Hopkins study on Friday, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki refused to defend lockdowns, saying instead, well, they were primarily a policy deployed by the previous administration. Urge to swear is rising. (laughs) We've not been pro-lockdown, Saki said, pointing out that forced businesses and school closures were primarily tools of the previous administration. Well, she's not entirely wrong. The harshest and most prolonged lockdowns came in 2020 prior to Biden's presidency, when they were embraced by nearly all states under federal guidance. But still, it's worth noting that both Saki and her and candidate Biden supported the use of lockdowns and history aside, Her refusal to defend the harmful policy invites important questions today. For starters, why does the White House continue to retain the services of the architect of the federal government's lockdown policy, Dr. Anthony Fauci? The chief medical advisor of President Biden and his predecessor, President Trump, despite the damage of the coercive policies he's championed. Have you noticed, by the way, we haven't seen or heard much from Fauci lately? That guy's laying low. Makes you wonder why. Now, John Miltimore says history will decide who to blame for the government's lockdown policies, which caused so much harm but achieved so little. But what's important to understand is how these policies came about. Now, there are many lessons to be sure, including F.A. Hayek's prophetic warning about how about the evil man is capable of if he fails to recognize the insuperable limits to his knowledge while armed with the immense power of government and physical silence science rather. But this Dr. Kala's description of why the government's restrictive policies have been so harmful, harmful rather, quote, we just ignore everything else in the economy and health and well-being to try to get to zero COVID, calls to mind one of the most important lessons in economics. In his classic work, Economics in One Lesson, Henry Hazlitt, building on the insights of the French economist Frederick Bastiat, author of That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Not Seen, observes one of the biggest flaws in policymaking. There is a persistent tendency of men to see only the immediate effects of a given policy or its effects only on a special group and to neglect to inquire what the long-run effects of that policy will be, not only on the special group, but on all groups. It is the fallacy of overlooking secondary consequences. Now, Hazlitt continued, in this lies almost the whole difference between good economics and bad. The bad economist sees only what immediately strikes the eye. The good economist also looks beyond. The bad economist sees only the direct consequences of a proposed course. The good economist looks also at the longer and indirect consequences. The bad economist sees only what the effect of a given policy has been or will be on one particular group. 
The Good Economist inquires also what the effect of the policy will be on all groups. Now, this is precisely the phenomenon described by Dr. Callis, who told CNBC that public officials must balance the potential benefits of an action with its costs, including its secondary and unseen costs. So to say it was a big mistake not to consider such consequences is a massive understatement. And I just want to point out and give props to John Miltimore, who is the managing editor of Fee.org, but... This guy has had some of the best articles. And if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I have shared his articles a lot over the last couple of years. Miltimore has been one of the people who has led out in terms of, you know, asking those questions that I'm sure those in power might find inconvenient because it, it challenges some of their assumptions. But he's been right. He has been right on the money, and I specifically will recommend this article just because of all the corresponding links that he has, which back this up. And I think to his credit, this isn't about, you know, bragging rights, and it's not about, oh, yeah, Miltimore wants to thump his chest, and yeah, see, I was right. I think the guy sincerely is, is doing his best to just question in a pursuit of truth what, what is really happening here. And he happens to be extremely good at connecting the dots and making sense. I can't think of anything that he has had to walk back, although I will say if something needed clarification, unlike many news sources like the New York Times and Washington Post, Miltimore is one of those writers who will correct things as they need to be or add clarification as it needs to be added. He doesn't think he's infallible. So I've got a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Got to tap the brakes here because we got to uh, take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to share some gems from Thomas Luongo. His latest column is uh, definitely worth your time. Uh, some much-needed clarity on the faux controversy surrounding Joe Rogan. And also, he has a pretty solid take on the, uh, the Canadian government's response to uh, the truckers and the citizens who are just tired of being ordered around. I know a lot of people are focusing on this, but uh, Luongo's got a very, uh, he's got a unique gift of putting these things into, into perspective. I particularly like his take on the uh, Joe Rogan controversy. So please stay with us. If you'd like to get these show notes in your inbox, just hit the subscribe button, share your email address with me. I will not share it with anybody else. It's just between you and me. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Before I share this uh, column from Thomas Luongo with you, I just want to say thank you. For, for giving this program a chance. And and I wish I could say, you know, I'm just as steady and consistent as the tide. You know, I I have my good days and I have my bad days. And uh, and and so I hope this is this is catching you on one of the days where I'm hitting on all cylinders, but it is such a privilege to be able to to speak to you and to to share these things with you. I don't have any sense that I've got all the answers. But I do believe that uh, that what I'm doing 
matters at some level. Not just because, well, because I am doing it, but because I, I really believe that uh, I look back over the course of my life and, and what I perceive is that uh, God has given me opportunities to prepare to be a person who can speak the truth and hopefully speak it convincingly at a time where um, truth is in short supply. That puts some pressure on me. In other words, I feel like this is, this is a stewardship of sorts. Um, it's not something that I can abuse and go out and, and use to just, you know, create some self-aggrandizing monument to myself. This is something that I, I think I'm supposed to do. And uh, I don't think it's always going to be as, as easy as it is right now. In fact, I, I perceive that uh, maybe we're, we're coming on times where speaking the truth is going to become quite dangerous, in fact. But I accept it, and I'm grateful for it. And it's humbling to me that, that you would give me the time of day to, to even you know, consider what's being said here on this program. All right, that said, let me share some gems with you from uh, Thomas Luongo. He starts by talking about uh, his disappointment with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who apparently, I, I haven't followed this so close. I, I really don't care much about Hollywood, and I don't care about, you know, the, the personalities involved. But apparently, Dwayne The Rock Johnson came out in favor of uh, Joe Rogan and, you know, kind of telling people, hey, back off, you know, and don't don't pick on the guy. He's, he's an okay guy. And then he apparently walked it back when the racism accusations started being leveled against Rogan. And the point here that, uh, that Luongo is making is that uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson has lost respect by, by publicly betraying not only uh, his friend Joe Rogan, but betraying himself and his carefully crafted persona. The point here is that respect is hard to earn. It's very, very easy to lose and he says, you know, uh, Rock, The Rock, you know, did some very cringeworthy things back in the wrestling ring. But he says Johnson should have stuck by Rogan, and Rogan shouldn't have apologized. And here are some interesting thoughts on this. It wasn't because Rogan used the, worm that, the word that rhymes with bigger in an honest inquisition on racism and the fearlessness of those comics who blazed a trail before him. It was because he vastly underestimated the scope and scale of the operation being run on him. Now, Rogan handled the initial onslaught well. In fact, there's a clip here from Jordan Peterson. I'm not going to have time to play it for you, but it's in the article, so it's worth clicking on it and checking it out. And Peterson, uh, you know, pointed out, uh, you know, he, he, he pretty much destroys the critics of, of Joe Rogan, saying Rogan handled it by, by addressing, you know, things squarely. But that was early last week. Then the next hammer dropped, and Rogan committed the unforgivable sin. He apologized. In other words, Joe caved to the pressure. His self-image and basic decency was cynically used against him to get that apology for being a successful white guy who doesn't know his subordinate place in the new order. Now, that's both a strategic and tactical error on his part that will hurt him more than even Jordan Peterson sees at the moment because they won't stop until Joe Rogan is destroyed now that he's given them, them something to throw at him. They know his weakness now. Tom Luongo says, I'm sure Rogan thought, I'll just tell the truth and let the chips fall where they may, because that's consistent with his personality and his persona, since they're one and the same. But there's no hiding from the mob, especially an unforgiving mob obsessed with power and the need to take Joe Rogan down now that he nearly single-handedly destroyed the COVID-19 vaccine narrative with the truth and a couple of podcasts. 
See, it's easy for those behind this targeted smear campaign to gin up some fake outrage, which empowers the false virtue of their cult members to attack Rogan and Spotify. When all you believe in is power, when humanity is nothing but a wall to project your own self-loathing onto, well, then there are no restraints on your behavior. But Tom Luongo says, my intuition here that this is not just Davos at work. But specifically, this bus is being driven by Obama, who pulls the strings of the Biden administration and who, it looks like, has now corrupted Dwayne Johnson since Dwayne is being courted as the Democrats' 2024 savior. He says, by the way, I'm happy to have Dwayne disabuse me of this notion. One has only to look at the arc of Johnson's character in the later seasons of Ballers to see where he's personally headed. To take on the old boys club of the NFL, Wall Street, and to be a champion of the people. If there was ever a job interview masquerading as entertainment, you couldn't have asked for a better example. But he says the difference between these two guys couldn't be clearer. Johnson was chosen by the old boys club while still thinking he's the one making the choice to be a leader of the people. On the other hand, Rogan was chosen by the people to be their proxy for keeping the lights on in the cave, screwing up the shadow play on the wall so they can make up their own minds. And while Joe can deny that responsibility, or more importantly, refuse to play the game, the game came to him when he signed a $100 million contract with Spotify last year. Tom Luongo says, I told you then, he blew up the Death Star with that contract. He moved off YouTube and gave his content to Spotify to distribute, validating them and providing a counterpoint to Apple, Amazon, and everyone else. But he had to know spitting in their eye repeatedly would bring the hammer down. This is why Joe Rogan's apology is so damning. He had the world ready to follow him, but he did the one thing you cannot do in this age of rage, and that is apologize to them for who you were or who you are. If they can't handle all of you, then they can't have any of you. So he says, Joe, I know you feel terrible about this, but why? No one owns any word. Words are not violence if they aren't meant that way. Anyone who thinks that is the one with the problem. So no matter how big your voice, you can't be responsible for people's reactions. Their emotions are their own to process. And if they choose to process them as temper tantrums on Twitter or Instagram, then let their actions be their judge. Now he says, Joe, you gained my respect by speaking honestly, but you lost it apologizing because that honesty hurt the feelings of people who already despise you. The truth is that this was a fight lost two generations ago when it became verboten for white people to use that word out of deference to try to heal a real divide within society. It was an apology for a past that many of us did not engage in nor are proud of. But it was never about that. It was the camel's nose under the tent. Political correctness and self-censorship are the very essence of totalitarianism. It's Marxist power theory 101. But where does it end? Tom Luongo says, should I, as a second-generation Italian immigrant with black curly hair when I had any and a dark complexion, be held accountable for U.S. slavery, which ended legally 40 years before my grandparents fled their homeland's poverty for a better life in Brooklyn and Queens? That apology has grown into the virus we have today, where everyone right of Karl Marx is a fascist, and we're taking our social cues this week from people who believe men can have babies. It's not just that we shouldn't apologize for who we aren't. But that apologies based on any kind of collective identity is antithetical to civil society. Joe Rogan knows that. Dwayne Johnson was supposed to know that. Joe, you apologize to people without shame or conscience. And what's missing in all of this frustration and fake outrage is that everyone, all of us, 
are being played for even reacting to this nonsense in the first place. Whoops. My hand goes up. Guilty. Guilty. He also has a great take here. Luongo talks about uh, trucking. He says, controversies like this are meant to drive a reaction, to grant legitimacy to a non-issue, and to give people a chance to be self-righteous. The NPCs screaming for Rogan's censorship refuse to admit they're just pawns in the Davos' ugly game of division, while the hashtag ungovernables are disappointed that Rogan didn't rise to the occasion and give them a little more courage. Now, if you really want to see the fire of resistance, Canada's truckers... They're not domestic terrorists. They're not white supremacists. They're not menaces to society. They're simply people who have no other options left, given that Davis's little buddy, Prime Minister Justin Blackface Trudeau, has mandated extra-constitutionally a two-tiered society that even his RCMP personal guard can't abide. He runs into hiding while leaving his civil servicemen to deal with the problem. It isn't just that uh, Trudeau is a venal little prick who can't stand tall and lead his cadre of government thugs into battle against a bunch of peaceful protesters. I mean, Luongo says I'd almost respect him for that. But if you act on beliefs that, that strongly and can lead men to action, that counts for something. But leading from behind the shadows, that is the most shameful act of all. There's more to this. It's a very comprehensive take on what's going on, and it's worth your time. So click on the link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I think you'll find something very worthwhile there from Tom Luongo. You'll also have the opportunity to subscribe to my show notes, which I hope you'll do. This is The Brian Hyde Show.